0: During the 1920s, the Big Easy was home to some of the most notorious members of the New Orleans underworld, including Silvestro Silverdollar Sam Carollo, a mafioso whose life is shrouded in legend
1: and mystery. There's a lot of lack of reliable sources when it comes to Carollo. He's kind of a mysterious figure when it comes to who was he as a person. His name.
2: You see it as Corolla and Corollo. And there's always been that argument, which is it? And I've heard different excuses of of why somebody just heard it as Corolla, and it got printed as Corolla, and it got changed to Corolla at some point. It was because of the newspapers. Also, his nickname, Silver Dollar Sam. It appears that was an invention of
0: the newspapers as well. As a member of Charles Matranga's Black Hand Gang, Sam Carollo quickly became a force to be reckoned with,
1: eventually surpassing Matranga as New Orleans' top dog. If Carollo ever resembled an Al Capone figure in New Orleans, it was during this time. The newspapers would call him the little czar of the underworld, a vipers bootlegger, and the worst of the Chicago-style gangsters. But Sam Carolo's luck
0: was about to run out when one of his targets survived an attack.
1: Carollo and his gang beat up Pace and Carollo shot him in the back, and Penton survived. So he was able to identify Carollo as the shooter. This is Mafia.
0: Silvestro Carollo was born June 17, 1896, in Terracini, Sicily. At the age of six, Carollo emigrated to the United States with his mother, arriving in the French Quarter of New Orleans. Ronald Rawson is a contributor to the National Crimes Syndicate.
2: Sam was six years old. Sam and his mother come over on the SS Manila in 1903. They leave the port of Palermo, On January 24th, and they arrive in the port of New Orleans on February 14th, 1903. And it was just Sam and his mother, uh,
0: Serafina Bomerita. There is no documentation of Sam's father, and it's believed that his mother, Serafina, raised Sam as a single parent. As Carollo grew into his teenage years, he began a romantic relationship with his first cousin, Caterina. So the
2: first we hear of Sam in the newspapers is in 1913. Katerina was born in New Orleans. Her dad, Anthony Carollo, was Sam's uncle. Katerina goes by Tenny. Tenny and Sam disappear the first week of March in 1913. They go to a a French Quarter Hotel and They register as man and wife, and they're there for about a week until the the operator of the hotel uh, reads in the newspaper that two 16-year-olds were being sought, you know, they had run away. From the description that she read in the newspaper,
0: she figured, okay, that's the the two kids that I, I have here. The hotel manager notified the authorities. When questioned about their marriage, Carollo lied and said he and Katerina... He looked. You know, when when they got
2: busted at the hotel, you know, they were both taken, uh, Tenny was taken to a, a home for, I guess, basically wayward girls. And um, Sam was taken to like a juvenile detention center. And Tenny basically told the people and her father that she would rather die than live without Sam. Well, this didn't sit too well with Tenny's dad, Anthony. And, and after some discussion with the courts, they decide to let Sam and, and Tenny go to Gulfport because Louisiana had a law where you couldn't marry your first cousin, but
0: Mississippi had no qualms about it. On March 20th, 1913, Sam Carollo and his first cousin, Katarina, traveled to Gulfport, Mississippi and became husband and wife. During this time period, the Matranga crime family had risen to prominence in New Orleans. Charles Matranga ruled over the New Orleans underworld with lucrative criminal activities, including extortion and labor racketeering. Sam Carollo had risen through the ranks of Matranga's Black Hand gang, becoming an influential member. Shortly after Prohibition, Charles Matranga was unwilling to get involved in bootlegging and decided to Retire. It is rumored that following Matrenga's retirement in 1922, Corrado Giacona assumed leadership and Corollo handled day-to-day operations. Basically what you would call a street boss. This this kind of fits
2: all the little bits and pieces that you find on New Orleans' mafia history. There's no real definitive book, uh, source or anything. There's all little bits and pieces scattered. All over the
0: place. You gotta kinda put them together. In 1927, Sam Carollo filed a petition for citizenship. He was ultimately denied due to his two year stint in federal prison four years prior for stealing 89 barrels of beer, a violation of the Volstead Act, also known as the National Prohibition Act.
2: Sam, you know, a, a lot of sources say Sam never became a citizen, never tried to become a citizen. Well, he did. February 27th, 1927, he filed a petition for naturalization, but he was rejected for naturalization due to his Volstead Act violation. So he
0: tried to do the right thing and become a citizen. But it just didn't work out the way he wanted. Legend has it, at the height of Carollo's power, infamous mafioso Al Capone tried to convince Carollo to supply his Chicago outfit with imported booze in exchange for cutting off rival bootlegger Joe Aiello. Al
2: travels to New Orleans. Sam meets Al at the train station. One version has it with some goons, another version with some New Orleans cops. Al gets off the train with his goons and Sam basically tells him to turn around and go back to Chicago. However, Al being here in 1929, Al had a really busy year in 1929. You know, he had the uh, Valentine's Day Massacre. He went to jail in in Pennsylvania. And two, you know, Al was one of the most famous people in the country. You know, photographers followed him everywhere. You know, if if Al had visited New Orleans, it, it seems like it would have been documented by the newspapers. As far as I'm concerned, it's myth. I mean, I never say never because you never know what kind of information might pop up later.
0: Thursday, August 22nd, 1929. Two alleged opium traffickers were being pursued by Agent Clarence Moore and Agent Julius Piper. That morning, the two suspects emerged from the shadows and got into their vehicle. Agent Moore slammed on the gas and rammed his car into theirs. As Agent Moore left his car to apprehend the dealers, one of the suspects shot Moore in the face. The bullet went straight through his jaw. Dexter Babin is the interim executive director and curator at the Regional Military Museum in Houma, Louisiana.
1: New Orleans, during the 1920s, was named one of the largest dope distributors, and when we talk about dope here, we mean heroin. And in the summer of 1929, there was a heroin shortage in New Orleans, causing dope prices to skyrocket. He actually survived the shooting. But the, the shooting of Moore was an embarrassment to New Orleans. The Saturday of Moore shooting, police superintendent Theodore Ray demanded a citywide cleanup of uh, New Orleans' $1 million a year dope industry. As police conducted raids throughout the area, witnesses identified Peter
0: Capro and Armando Omari as the alleged suspects. Their bonds were set at $15,000 each.
1: Capro was a bootlegger. He had a long history of violence and bootlegging. And Amari didn't fit kind of the profile. He was an ex-sailor, a drifter, and a drug addict. So they brought Capro into Moore's hospital room. But Moore didn't identify him as the man who shot him. Three weeks after the shooting, Moore would appear uh, at the New Orleans District Attorney's Office signing uh, a document saying that Peter Capro and Armando Amari were not the two men who shot him. So that kind of led him off the hook for that. It would be Agent Moore's partner, Agent Piper, who would file a blank complaint and identify Sam Carollo and Frank Todaro. Frank Todaro was a pretty important figure. He was
2: underboss to Carado Giancona, and he was also the uncle to Jacqueline Todaro, who ended up marrying Carlos Marcello.
0: Carollo and Todara had fled New Orleans shortly after Moore's shooting. Grand jury indictments were soon handed down for the two men. In late February 1930, police were notified that Carollo and Todara had returned and were immediately arrested.
2: At the trial, Sam and Frank testified that they were in New York. The story was that they had given... $5,000 to a man named Louis Schwett to finance a large whiskey shipment from Mexico. Schwett basically disappeared with the money and basically screwed Sam and and Frank. they, They heard that he was in New York. So they decided to go to New York to find him and get their money back and extract whatever revenge they were going to. Their story was that they left and they arrived in New York. They drove up, arrived in New York on August 18th. 1929, four days before the shooting. During the trial, they produced receipts from the hotel, along with a photocopy of the hotel register, showing that they registered on August
0: 18th. Eventually, both men were released due to lack of evidence and cleared of all charges related to Moore's shooting.
1: Fortunately for Corollo and Tadaro, there was just not enough evidence to charge them with this crime, so neither of them served time in jail. September 1,
0: 1930, Hayes Penton and Hubert Serrigent were at the home of John Zecanelli, leader of a gang of bootleggers. Penton would later testify that he saw a truck full of whiskey being delivered to Zecanelli's residence by Bill Bailey and Paul DuPlessis. Hours later... Sam Carollo, along with associates Sammy Kansas City Sam Rubdo and John Mendona, make a surprise visit to Zecanelli's house, demanding the return of his whiskey supply. Several nights prior, Carollo's stash had been raided by hijackers at the home of Vincent Rizzo, and several thousand dollars' worth of liquor was stolen. Both Zecanelli and Penton denied any knowledge of the hijacking.
1: Carollo and his gang beat up Hayes, and Carollo shot him in the back, and Penton survived, so he was able to identify Carollo as the shooter. Carollo was
0: arrested, but quickly posted bond. Months later, on December 29th, Hayes Penton, Bill Bailey, and John Zaccanelli congregated in front of Zaccanelli's home on Governor Nichols Street. The reason for the meeting was unclear, but possibly due to Zaccanelli's upcoming departure to Atlanta, where he was to serve one to three years for violating the Volstead Act. Around 10 p.m., all three parted ways. Bailey returned an hour later to Zecanelli's home for another meeting with a bootlegger named Alfred Austin. While Bailey waited outside, a lone car crept up Governor Nichols Street in the dead of night. Bailey was then shot 14 times in the abdomen and right arm and they, they blasted him with shotguns.
2: He initially survived, he survived until Sunday morning. He was lucid most of the, most of the, the, the time he was still alive and the cops asked him, you know, hey, who shot you? And, I, and all he would say is, it was that Sam
0: Carollo and his gang. Bailey would die soon after. Carollo was immediately arrested and claimed to have no knowledge of the shooting. He told authorities he was at home at the time of Bailey's assassination. Carolla would be held for murder without bond while the New Orleans district attorney investigated Bailey's death. Carolla was still in prison when his trial began for the attempted murder of Hayes Penton. During the trial, Carolla was labeled by lawyers as the little czar of the underworld, a viperous bootlegger, and the worst of the Chicago-style gangsters. January 24th, 1931. Carollo was sentenced to 8 to 15 years for the attempted murder of Hayes Penton, which was to begin following a three-year sentence for violating the Harris Narcotics Tax Act.
1: So he was looking at a good 18 years in jail, and this may start to speak to some of Carollo's political connections, if he had any. Carollo was pardoned by Governor O.K. Allen, in 1934, and Governor OK Allen was Huey Long's puppet governor. Huey Long couldn't serve another term, so Governor OK Allen was governor, but he basically did whatever Huey Long told him to do.
0: Following his pardon from Governor OK Allen, Carollo would soon find himself facing a five year sentence for yet another violation of the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act. The United States government would soon determine Carollo to be an undesirable alien.
1: They're like, why is this guy here? This guy's not even a citizen. Can we can we send him away now? And that's when they started deportation proceedings against him.
0: In 1934, Sam Carollo was released from prison after negotiating a deal to relocate infamous mobster Frank Costello's slot machines from New York to Louisiana. In return for a cut of the profits, Carollo got political protection for all of his Louisiana operations. Ronald Rawson is a contributor to the National Crime Syndicate.
2: You know, the story goes that when Frank Costello was kicked out of New York, by the little flower, uh, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. He kicked him out along with his slot machines. The story goes that Huey Long invited Frank Costello to bring his slot machines down to Louisiana. At the time, you know, Sam was basically running things. You would think Sam would, would have had to have been part of the negotiations for that. There's no record of it, it is possible. However, like I said, Sam was either in court or most of the time in the 30s, he was in jail. By
0: 1938, Carolla was sentenced for yet another narcotics charge at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. Upon his release two years later, the government became aware of Carolla's lack of citizenship and was scheduled to be deported back to Italy.
1: And luckily for Carolla, World War II broke out not long after that, and They put a freeze on all deportations. In 1944, Corrado Giacona died
0: and was succeeded by his underboss, Frank Todaro. But just six months later, Todaro died from complications related to throat cancer. Corollo was now in charge. Rumor has it that Corollo was poisoning Todaro to speed the process of his condition along. In 1945, Louisiana Congressman Jimmy Morrison introduced a bill that would have granted Corolla citizenship. However, reporter Drew Pearson got wind of the secret deal and publicly exposed this information. Dexter Babin is the interim executive director and curator at the Regional Military Museum in Houma, Louisiana.
1: New Orleans papers found out about it and went kind of crazy, saying, oh, we have a representative trying to pardon a gangster. Morrison claimed he had no idea who Carollo was. He did it at the request of a friend who was a lawyer, C. Ray Grill. He said this was not uncommon for him to do, so he claims. And right before his deportation in 47, Carollo was arrested again uh, with being linked to a, a wire racing service with his son, Anthony Carollo, and New Orleans gambler and gangster Joseph Pareto. Sam Carollo was finally deported by the U.S. government
0: in 1947. So they scheduled his deportation for April 14th,
2: 1947, but Sam offered to pay his own way back to Italy, so the government gave him an extra two weeks because Sam basically saved them $450 on a plane ticket. So they gave him an extra two weeks. Sam is deported on April 30th, 1947, you know that basically left uh, a leadership hole in, in, in the family.
1: There was a meeting at the Black Diamond Club in New Orleans, which was a predominantly African-American nightclub. And some authors suggest that they met in this back room to throw local authorities off to this meeting. And kind of the higher echelon of the New Orleans mafia gathered and in, in, would figure out who would replace Carollo.
0: Despite Carollo's son, Anthony, being an option, Carlos Marcelo would preside over organized crime in New Orleans. Anthony didn't
2: seem to have
0: much support. He, it didn't seem Anthony was really a popular guy
2: in the family. And Carlos, by, by 1947, you know, he had he had done really well placing Frank Costello's slot machines on the West Bank by 1945. When Frank Costello had opened up the Beverly Country Club in Jefferson, Louisiana, which was basically the biggest, swankiest gambling joint in the area, uh, Carlos Marcello was given a 12% interest in
1: that. So he he had had been steadily rising in the ranks. Once he was deported, he was deported to Terracini, Sicily, where he was from. And he operated a cafe there, according to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics file on him. There's enough evidence to suggest that he got into narcotics smuggling. In April of 1950, Harry Anslinger, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics Director, spoke about a narcotics conference that was attended by exiled mobsters like Carollo, who were deported from the United States. You had Francisco Three Fingers Coppola over there, you had Anthony Lopiparo over there, Tano Lococo over there and Sebastian Gallo were all mobsters that were involved in the narcotics trade who were not naturalized citizens that were deported from the United States. And they met at a a restaurant called Caesar's Restaurant in Tijuana, Mexico.
0: Carolo allegedly established a criminal enterprise with fellow exile Charles Lucky Luciano. And some stories go that He
2: was working with Lucky Luciano on on the narcotics routes. One version even has Sam going to Mexico as a sort of liaison between Lucky in Italy and his drug people in Mexico.
1: If you want to smuggle something into the country, Corolla was the best guy to do it because he was able to smuggle himself back into the country multiple times uh, after his deportation. In 1950, Sam
0: Carollo had illegally made his way back to New Orleans. In a story printed in the New Orleans item, Carollo claimed to be visiting his sick wife. He was quoted as saying, uh,
2: I had to come back to see my wife and family. Life wasn't worth living without them, and there's no place like the United States. It was terrible to be away. And when he was told he could be facing a two-year jail sentence and a a $1,000 fine, he further replied... I knew there was a risk to coming back, but nothing matters if I can only stay here.
1: Carolla was found in a quote-unquote luxurious hideaway in Slidell, Louisiana, which is just kind of north of New Orleans, on July 4th, 1950, with a partner of his from his prohibition days, Kansas City Sam, who was also deported in 1938.
2: Just as a little side note, one of Carolla's lawyers was Jack Wasserman, he, he helped write immigration laws in the 1940s, and he, was all, he would also become more well-known later on for being Carlos Marcello's
0: immigration lawyer. Carollo was deported again and remained in Palermo, Sicily for the next 20 years. According to Life magazine, Sam Carollo returned to New Orleans at the request of Carlos Marcello to intercede disputes within the crime family. One account suggests that the rivalry was between Carolo's son, Anthony, and Marcelo's brother, Joe, over the succession of leadership. Anthony previously lost to Carlos, when it was decided to place Marcelo in charge, following Carolo's deportation. His son, Anthony, and his daughter, Sarah, they flew back to escort their
2: aging, ill-health father back into the United States. The story goes, they flew into Canada and then entered the United States through Detroit. It appears that Sam came in legally, but maybe
0: under false pretenses. Upon his return to the United States, a federal grand jury began investigating Carollo's return. However, the case was put on hold indefinitely due to his failing health.
1: The press discovered Carollo was at Toro Infirmary on February 21st, 1970, uh, and he suffered from a heart attack. And an investigation started on how he entered the United States, but he outlived the investigation. On
0: June 26th, 1970, Silver Dollar Sam Carollo died at age 74.
2: As I said in the beginning, the, the nickname of Silver Dollar Sam, you know, you don't see it until the articles in 1970, where, you know, first they're reporting that Sam is back in town, and then the obituaries and silver dollar Sam is on I think I think every one of those clippings that I've got a a story was told to me by one of the uh, Todaro descendants. Uh, His dad, when when um, Sam came back into town, it was being reported all over the news that silver dollar Sam is back in town. His dad, who was a Todaro, uh, knew Sam, and he, he started yelling at the TV, apparently, is, what is this Silver Dollar Sam shit? That's Sam Carollo. So, uh, yeah, it, it seems it seems the Silver Dollar Sam was just a, an invention of, of the
0: papers. Years later, following the death of Carlos Marcello, Sam's son, Anthony, would finally become boss of the New Orleans crime family.
2: Because he had always resented losing out He thought since his his dad was San Carollo, he was his son, it was his right to take over. It never got into like a a violent rivalry, but there was always that rivalry between Marcello faction and the Carollo faction.
0: Anthony Carollo's time as the family's boss was short-lived. He was soon arrested and convicted in the hard crust sting by the FBI in the mid-1990s. He spent four years in prison for illegally scanning video poker machines. The legacy of Sam Carollo, much like the New Orleans crime family, is cloaked in mystery and folklore.
2: New Orleans never had a rat. Uh, If you look at New York and even Chicago, there's all kinds of rats. There's all kinds of guys that flipped, uh, gave testimony. Even if you you take some of that testimony with a grain of salt, like, you know, Henry Hill and stuff, or even Sammy Gravano. You know, I mean, their testimony was self-serving for the most part. They did give some information that was corroborated, you know, through other sources. So and and especially New York, there was a lot of rats in New York. uh, That's, you know, that's reason that Information is much better, and there's much more of it. You know, even the, the cops, they had their informants. All the cops that wrote books, you know, they, they had informants. Even if they weren't named, they got information from their informants.
1: To this day, we still don't have a firm grasp on the organization of the New Orleans Mafia. You know, if the rest of the families in New York and Chicago, I wouldn't even call New Orleans a family. But you have these organizational maps, these charts, where you have boss, underboss, capo, and soldier. We have none of that for New Orleans. The government was never able to figure out, besides that Carlos Marcello was the head of some kind of criminal syndicate, that who were members of it, what their rankings were, and what they did. That's a 90% of the reason why you had no one flip and testify against Marcello. FBI had no idea who to target, who to bug. They kind of didn't understand how this organization was structured. And that went on. The FBI has been complaining about that since the Chiaver Committee in the 50s to the last FBI operation against Marcello, which was Camtext, in the, in the mid-80s. So you, you almost have like a 40-year period where we just don't know the structure of this organization.
0: Next week on Mafia In the mid-1940s a young man by the name of Jimmy Fratiano arrived in Los Angeles and quickly rose through the ranks of the L.A. crime family In that culture he was an admired
2: personality and they knew that Jimmy could carry out just about whatever deed needed to be done and of course uh, he proved uh, over the years that he was quite capable of doing that.
0: But as the landscape of the L.A. crime family changed, so did Fratiano's status. Disagreements with high-ranking members put his life in danger, leading to a life-changing decision for Fratiano. So it didn't take a genius to understand that
2: something uh, was going on in Jimmy's life and his relationship with the L.A. family that was significant.
0: This has been Mafia, an Audioboom original series, hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. This show is produced by Audioboom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, Karen Bevan, and Rachel Jacobs. Executive producers for Audioboom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. Special thanks to Ronald Rawson and Dexter Babin. For more information regarding the New Orleans Mafia, visit NationalCrimeSyndicate.com and louisianamafia.wordpress.com. Follow Mafia on Spotify, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.